Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Earlier this week, that was wild, right? With Sailor? Yeah, it was great. It was awesome uh, to chat. And uh, I'm excited for the micro strategy Bitcoin or Lightning for corporations. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> the best part in the morning uh, when we were first starting, I was like, hey, what do you think about Lightning? And he's like, Sailor goes, well, I don't know. I kind of, I listen to Stefan Lavera's podcast. Like, let's hear from him first. <laughs> well, yeah, that was very flattering for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise and teach the other 7 billion people on the planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin today. We're going to do another Bitcoin beginner Q&A with Stefan Lavera and Tomer Strohlight. Very excited for that. Back to our roots. Uh, so good morning to everyone else who's joined us. Peter, Jacob, Wicked, all y'all. Morning. Uh, morning. Before we start digging in here, did you guys see that tweet from Seller this morning? He goes, lightning will be as common as email. And, he, and then he dropped lightningaddress.com. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think it's interesting to see where all this stuff is going. People are innovating and they are coming up with ways to smooth the UX, make it easy. So, I mean, it was great for uh, Andre's idea as i understand lightning address is his idea and it's kind of built up on top of lnurl in a way and so it's really interesting uh, it, it i guess it can get a bit complicated because even on twitter people were discussing and being like hang on what there's an email address and then we've got lightning address how do they work can you have them both at the same address and the answer is yes you can they're separate protocols and so it's interesting to see that. I know the guys over at Coin Corner have done that also, where they've got email addresses that are also a Lightning address at the same time. So fascinating to see where it's going and how that is going to enable a whole new round of people to start using Lightning and getting exposed to Bitcoin that way. Stefan, have you seen how this works yet? Have you seen how, how do you send uh, Lightning to somebody using an email address? Oh, so, it's, so just to be clear, they are, so think of it like this. Email is a protocol, right? Like SMTP and things like this. And then Bitcoin and Lightning address is another protocol. They are two independent protocols. And you can think of it like, you know, Michael Saylor is running both an email server and also a Lightning address and Lightning node. That's how he's achieving that. So 
it's actually two separate protocols. It's not like you could, you know, somebody has to specifically set it up this way. It's not, it's not something that just comes by default, right? Like it's not that you just by having an email, you also have a lightning address. Like th there is actual configuration and steps involved for that, if that makes sense. So they are separate and distinct protocols. Um, and so whoever is running one of them, they have to also go and do the work to run the other one. And they have two different, like, it's like uh, on the internet, there's this thing called like rec name records. So it relates to like DNS. It's kind of getting a little bit into the technical details, but basically there are different records. And uh, actually Coin Corner Danny was explaining to me this to me. He was saying, as an example, you would have the A record point to the email and then another record for the lightning address aspect of it. So yeah, basically short answer is they're two separate protocols. It's possible to have the same address that operates as both, but in most cases today, it is not the case. It's one or the other. But Stefan, is it, it's important to understand, um, and please answer this question because I'm asking it as a, as a question, not for any, if, if your company owns your domain, your company.com domain, no stranger can set up uh, a, a lightning URL set up addresses yes, correct. to receive from you. Yeah, so the... As I understand, it relates to owning that domain. So you would have to set up a specific thing relating to that domain. Now, I guess maybe, you know, if you're getting really into the weeds, there's kind of people talk about things like BGP and hijacking over domains and things like this. But I mean, in most cases, yeah, it's about you controlling that domain and you setting up a lightning address and lightning node associated for that domain, as well as having the email server for that, you know, like running the email server for that associated with that. And there's a whole set of new beginner questions for us to start asking on all, on all of this stuff. It's very easy for people to get uh, addresses like uh, the, these lightning addresses. You just download one of these lightning wallets, like like Wallet of Satoshi, and it gives you one. It gives you one that's not your name at some at your preferred address. It gives you some made up, but using English word English words name at walletofsatoshi.com or or one of these other things. So it's very easy to get one of these things. And it's also interesting, maybe we we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it's interesting that if you're using something like Noster and over there they've incorporated this technology called zapping, that's what it's it's using. It's using these uh LN addresses, Lightning Network addresses, to repeatedly make it easy for anybody to send you uh, Satoshis instantly using Lightning Network. Yes. Uh, just to follow one small thing I mentioned before. Um, so think of it like this. There are different types of record that you can point to. So when your computer does a search, it needs to know where to find that. And so it's normally asking a DNS server. And so in this case, there are different kinds of records. So in the case here of the lightning address is the A record that points to the server that handles the lightning address component of it. And then on the email side, you have an MX records to the mail server that's handling the email. So just understand they are different and distinct protocols. But ultimately for users, it may, it may be that if everybody's generally setting up uh, LN address to come to go alongside an email address, you don't really need to know that it's two different things. Just your IT person would need to know 
Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, what we're talking about is kind of the plumbing of it. The actual end user doesn't really have to care so long as it gets built out for them this way, right? It's the same kind of idea that, you know, we don't have to think about the intricacies of the switched system uh, when you send an international wire and things like the older, maybe you kind of do because you have to know the switched codes or whatever, but you don't have to think about the internal plumbing, you know? Um, Wicked looks like he's got something to say. How long before uh, Swan has this set up for all their internal email? You guys working on it? That's a great question. I actually just dropped this in uh, Team Slack this morning. I, there's a handful of our engineers that do all kinds of lightning stuff now. Uh, and they're, you know, they've been digging into this for a while. Uh, whether we're going to set this up at a company level or not, I don't know. Like, uh, I'm a big fan of that idea. We'll see. I don't I don't get to set what our production priorities are, though. Like our engineering team is being pulled in like, I don't know, a hundred different directions all at the same time. Everybody wants all kinds of stuff, you know? Like I, I suppose another thing that'd be cool. I mean, just thinking of it from like a company or corporate level, you know, if you set up every employee with their own email that has an associated lightning, you know, wallet or whatever. I mean, now you're starting to talk about like, what about streaming them sets per hour of work? And so you get like a, a real time, you know, earning <laughs> like that would be, um, you know, now we're actually talking like this is all theory, right? Like you know, a few years ago, we heard people talking about it when lightning was first getting, you know, like implemented and all these ideas of like, why you could stream sats, you know, real time and. Now we're seeing it happen for like podcasts. We're seeing it happen for, you know, accessing websites. We're seeing it happen. And so like, what, you know, like when, when is it going to be that, uh, like, you know, one of these Bitcoin forward companies like MicroStrategy or Swan or, you know, whatever, just have it where they allow, you know, instant streaming <laughs> payments to their employees. I mean, I don't know, man, I don't know about you, but if I was like a developer, and there was a company willing to pay me, you know, per hour, like instantly for my work. I think I'd prefer that than uh, waiting every two weeks or month to, to get a paycheck. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but it sounds pretty nice to me. It's, a, it's such a game. If you imagine a not too distant in the future world where everybody's able to receive Bitcoin as easily as they're able to receive and send email. That is a, such a huge leap from where we are today. And, and what that would do to the adoption and acceptability of Bitcoin would be uh, oh, yeah. un unimaginable, right? And you could send money of any amount instantly to anyone anywhere in the world. Wow. Right. That's the promise. And, and I, I think that's what Michael Saker was kind of blew everybody's minds when he said, oh, we did it in MicroStrategy. And I'm wondering if we, if we just approached Microsoft and Google and have them do it for Active Directory and, and Gmail. And suddenly billions of people are instantly able to send and receive Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, of course, I would love to see that. I, we know, of course, in today's world, you know, I have my libertarian dreams about uh, small government, less, well, less government and less regulation. But I know there'd be a thousand and one questions being raised by, you know, AML sanctions, this, that, custody, you know, there'd be a thousand, uh, millions of questions that um, those companies would have to go through before they could, uh, you know, 
turn it on as it were. Um, but the, the promise is there. And I think the point is that for you know, now decades, people have become accustomed to this idea that I can just send a message instantly at extremely low cost, like email with, or nowadays with texting apps and things like, you know, whatever, WhatsApp and Signal and whatever else everyone's using. But we don't have that for money. And we have, our, it's a very common thing that in our phone, we'll have a contact list and we'll have a phone number to reach somebody, but we don't have a lightning address to pay somebody. And so I think that's an interesting angle also um, that we are seeing in some lightning wallets. So as an example, I know Blixt wallet has this kind of feature where you have a contacts list and you could, you know, Toma, you could have a lightning address and I could have you in there. And then, you know, as an example, you know, when a bunch of friends go out for lunch or dinner and maybe one person takes, takes the bill and everyone pays back for their share, it would be very fast, right? I could be like, oh, okay, here's, $20 for my share of the bill to Toma and boom, just done instantly kind of in a smooth way. Like you can imagine where that could go. And we are starting to see, oh, I've been pushing uh, the guys at Zeus, like Evan and them at Zeus Wallet to implement a, a contact list. And it's, I think that would be really cool to have a lightning address that you can just start to can just have an easy way to just pay people. And of course, there's lots of people in different approaches here. So John Carvalho and the people over at Synonym, they've got this slash tags approach. And so maybe they would disagree with the idea of doing lightning addresses, the only, the one and only, maybe there's this idea of having multiple. Um, it kind of, it remains to be seen there, but I think lightning address is starting to gain some ground and a bit of steam there because we're seeing it used in different contexts. So for example, the pouch people over there, they're, they're in the Philippines and they're doing Bitcoin there. And the vendors have like a lightning address and you are paying to a lightning address. And we're seeing these collaborations happen between different Bitcoin companies, whether that is, uh, let's say Strike in the US, whether it's Bitnob, whether it is Coin Corner in the UK or, you know, serving the UK from the Isle of Man. Um, whether it is, you know, any of these com uh, Neutron Pay in Vietnam or Pouch in the Philippines, and they're all connecting up. And Zebedee even did an integration as well. And in the and there, some of them are using Lightning Address as a way to sort of interconnect. And so it's really cool, the potential that is there. Peter, good morning, man. What do you got? Uh, good morning. So, um, you know, I personally... Uh, I personally use Lightning almost every day um, because um, on Stack Chain we play a game called Packer, which is basically poker, and we we um, we settle up with with Lightning. Uh, um, but my my so in the West or in the in the banked countries, you know, there's really people will say, well, you know, I, I mean, I see this in in developing countries where people are unbanked, and this is a this is an incredible uh, innovation for them. Um, it's extremely cheap, um, and it gives them the, the, the power to have, uh, banking in, in small amounts, um, immediately in the West, if we're talking about, you know, the adoption of Bitcoin, people are, I mean, and I, I don't mean to be a naysayer here, but people are going to be like, they just don't have the need for them. I'm like, well, I can use Zelle or I can use Venmo, you know, these things already exist. So I guess. My question is, um, Stefan or, or Tomer or anybody else up here, my question is, how do we as plebs, when we're talking about uh, Lightning and our ability to use Lightning, 
what are some of the things that we can talk about that differentiate um, Lightning from these other kinds of centralized services? Um, and also, uh, the only reason when I'm using Lightning that I know that Bitcoin is involved is because I've taken the, the journey down the, down the rabbit hole to, to understand how um, this particular protocol works, at least, you know, from a, from a relatively uh, uh, beginner's view of it, but I kind of understand how it works. So I, I guess my question is, what are, some of the, what are some of the things that we can talk about that are um, uh, points about Lightning that really would get people interested? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, I think we have to think about what is the right comparison with Bitcoin and Lightning. Bitcoin is about this parallel financial system. It's making payments that you don't have to ask permission for. So, you know, to some people that may not appeal to them, you know, that's, that's one aspect of it. So I think you have to tell the message, you know, it's pick the right tool for the job. But to your specific question about what makes Lightning special, there's a certain level of convenience. There's an aspect of settlement, right? Like you, you are doing final settlement now. It's, it's, it's distinct from people who are doing zero confirmation transactions, or let's say in the CR world, people are using credit cards and actually that still takes time to settle or, you know, you, you do an ACH payment to somebody, actually that's still, that could still be clawed back, but it's different in the lightning world. So I think those are a few examples then, um, but for some people in practice, because all their payments are in CR they may not see a benefit from their perspective, right? If they're not zooming out and thinking about the broader aspect of what's happening. So I think to those people, it's more about trying to talk about the problems of the fiat currency system, right? So as I, as I often say, people won't see the point or understand Bitcoin until they understand the problem of fiat currency, right? If you don't understand the problem of fiat currency, it's just, it's just difficult to bridge that gap and help per that person understand why Bitcoin is a good thing, why Lightning is a good thing. So... You know, those are a few ideas, um, but you, you could also talk about it in terms of what can enable somebody to earn money, right? Let's say somebody is in that, uh, is, you know, shut out from the CR system, then if for whatever reason, um, then Lightning address is a way to take donations, right? So maybe it would be different, right? Like if, let's say some of the protests that have happened, if people had easy access to a Lightning address, would, would that have changed things? And would people have been able to just quickly shoot through lightning donations and do it that way, as opposed to being reliant on, let's say, GoFundMe or GiveSendGo or PayPal or these typical CR options? Maybe I, I'll add one. I think it's, it's Stefan's thing. The, the most important point is that you understand what it is that is appealing about Bitcoin in general to the person you're speaking to. Otherwise, you're, you're taking a, a shot in the dark. That it is this notion that, um, like Bitcoin itself, you can avoid having a trusted shared party, a, tr a middleman might who might censor you along the way with Lightning. It's all the conveniences of using direct transfers of the banking system without you being monitored, without you being without you requiring permission, and so that again is uh, it, it, it's part of what we're trying to drive towards. Right, this is a uh, a monetary system that isn't controlled by anybody in particular. And that means that you've got the freedom to use it however you choose to. So you can, you can go buy gasoline, even if the government says you can't, provided that there's someone selling it.
Uh, Wicked, do you want to jump in here? Yeah. And so, <clears throat> I mean, one of the, you know, key kind of critiques of lightning that you hear a lot, uh, is the fact that most people are using it in a custodial way. Right. And I wanted to get your two comments on, you know, why or why not that could be a risk and, um, you know, are there any, are there any, any technologies, uh, kind of being built out now or thought of that could help mitigate that? Um, sure. so, um, let me answer that first question. So the short answer is yes, but it's going to take time. I've got episodes with recent episodes with Matt Corello and also with Hampus Schoberg, where we go into some of that. So for example, I speak with Matt Corello and with Hampus about this idea of having non-custodial, uh, like in an easy way, non-custodial, you know, payments, um, that are easy to do with donations as an example. And so Hampus's idea, he has this idea of lightning box. So you can sort of think of it like it's a. Uh, you have an LSP, Lightning Service Provider, who is, let's say, collecting some of those payments for you, and then they forward them to you once your phone comes back online. That's one idea he's developing and working with. And uh, Matt Corallo has this idea, which is called asynchronous payments. And now that's from a couple of years ago, but there's work required to get there, to do it in this sort of non-custodial, self-sovereign way, because there would need to be further advancement and technology with the lighting network. And so doing stuff that's non-custodial all the way through is more technically difficult. Uh, but you, you could probably also argue maybe there's less legal risk there if you are doing things in a non-custodial way, because people who are doing things custodial are at more risk of, you know, big, big government coming after them for not doing, you know, AML, KYC or whatever, whatever the latest thing that they're angry, the government is angry about. And so, the, you know, that's kind of one way to look at that. Um, the other aspect of it is that you can look at it like this notion of community custodial, right? Like maybe we see the community custodial, the Fetty Mint style thing happen where, you know, it's distributing the custodians out. Um, but yeah, certainly there are risks of a lot of people, a lot of people are using custodial and don't, yeah, are not aware about doing a bank run basically and pulling their coins out, as we say in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. Um, and it's important that we encourage people to do that. I think, uh, we're not going to be perfect with it, but we just, we have to just do that in a way to help retain the qualities of Bitcoin that we want and that we like. That if a lot of people all just use custodial and don't even think about pulling, you know, to their own self-custody, does that create a lot of paper Bitcoin? Does that create a system that can be more easily captured? Does that create this kind of problem that we saw with FTX having all this paper Bitcoin? So I think that's the problem, but in terms of what's the, what's the solution, what's the answer is I think is encouraging people to you know, take custody and at the worst, if they are using custodial platforms, then encourage them that that should only be temporary and only for smaller amounts. Um, though, you know, I don't use those platforms myself, uh, but I just try to, you know, be familiar just to understand what they are and how people are using them. So Emma, did you want to add anything then? Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll add something small. I don't have much time. I think it's a great question. I, I think if I try to step away from all the technical details of it and say, 
this is a market right now where there's so much innovation taking place and there's so many different ideas, as Stefan alludes to guests on the show coming, talking about all these different things, that you can um, expect lots of different models to be experimented with. And what it, what it really calls upon the Bitcoin community, the Bitcoiner community to do is to evaluate and audit and communicate about both the strengths and weaknesses of different models that are out there. Like this is going to grow very quickly at some point as all these different methods of using lightning in a combination of fully custodial or fully shelf custodied or, or things along the spectrum in between there emerge. And, and we just need to make sure that we're doing everything that we can as users to make people aware of risks of different models um, and to hold the providers of models to account for uh, minimizing the vulnerabilities that they're, that they're creating. So there's just going to be a lot of really interesting things happening. But this is, this is the kind of innovation that we're starting to see now in Bitcoin that we were able to see back in the late 90s in, on the internet when people realized, oh, this is an open protocol. I can build pretty much whatever I want as long as the and so I build it out of the basic building blocks of the instrument. And so now that we have Lightning and we can see how it can connect to the internet itself and doing all these things like using email style addresses um, and, and domain names, which are part of the internet itself, it's all accelerating very rapidly. And so it, it, like, it's amazing to me, right? Here we are, we're having a beginner Q&A question and we're talking about something that is... Um, it's for people who are now beginning to use Lightning Network with LN URLs and LN addresses. And this was not something we would have even talked about at any time last year, or we would have not, not in the beginner Q&A. And it's all we're talking about right now. So it just, it shows the momentum and pace at which this thing is starting to accelerate. I will also just shout out as well. Um, I see Bobby's there in the audience as well. So I know the Voltage team are working on this kind of thing. Also, they're trying to make it easy for people to self-custody and do their own, as, as in uh, run their own Lightning node. And I know they've done um, some work uh, on helping people have their own non-custodial Lightning address. So that's, that's an example of the kind of thing um, that we could see that will help distribute it out further and further so that way it's not everyone has just got you know all they got yeah leaving all their stuff with one particular provider whether it's wallet or satoshi or someone else um we've got tao have you got a question there hey actually this is an interesting topic but you guys are missing the most exciting topic and that is i have the ability and did send michael sailor some sats like because his email his company, they had Don't everybody. Don't feed the whales. Don't feed the, the whales, Mike, Tao. Well, 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 it's very, you know, hey, it was so, um, like, just to have that ability with their company email addresses. And just like you said, once this gets applied to every other company, uh, Microsoft Active Directory um, addresses, I just expanded further to, let's say, Google, Gmail, email, Yahoo. If those companies wanted to, they can easily integrate lightning and this map like a lightning address with the the regular emails that you have right now giving users the ability to download an app on their phone scan a qr code that's associated to their profile under the gmail yahoo account and boom they're already connected in that fashion so to me it, this is really exciting like the fact that you know like look michael said may have not met you or whatever maybe the case but because you have this 
email address. You can send it to them. So I'm like, oh, this is really fun. I'll send them some stats. And it just, it was a different and very interesting feeling. So I just thought that's, that's, that's the other thing that adoption is kind of starting to trigger here with the lightning address. That's all I have to say. Thanks. All right. So I think you can is... bring back fun. Gone. Oh, I was just going to say that this kind of stuff is all actually pretty advanced. Um, I think it's pretty easy for us who've been around Bitcoin for a little while to start to get a little deeper into the weeds on stuff, which is fine. Uh, but I would like to, if it's cool with you guys, start hitting some really common basic beginner questions. And what we can do is if you're in the audience and you want to ask a basic beginner question, we're going to get it rolling up here. But if you want to come up and ask a question, we'll be kind to you. I promise we won't make fun of you. Uh, all your questions are important. We'll do our best to answer them to the best of our ability. If you want to ask a question in our Telegram group, you can do that t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. By the way, you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day. This is episode 327. And speaking of streaming, uh, value for value, shout outs to Jason C741 and user 736822 over on Fountain. Let's roll into some of these basic beginner questions. Wicked, what's up? Yeah, yeah so I've got a beginner question. Um, I recently saw this video on Twitter showing Bitcoin's inflation rate, and it looks like it's getting cut in half every four years. Can you explain why that happens? Oh boy, that's uh, the video that you obviously made. And I did <laughs> yeah, Wicked made that. <laughs> I, so this is the question about what's commonly known as the halving or the happening. And uh, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin uh, and nobody can change that. Anyone who tries to make. Oh, I lost you, Tomer. We lose Tomer. Oh, phone call tried to bust it. Oh, you're back. Go I'm ahead. I'm back. I'm back. It was just a phone call. Tried to spam phone call. Well, hopefully... One day we can use Bitcoin to prevent spam phone calls from coming in uh, in not too distant future. Uh, so, uh, there, some people say there already are 21 million Bitcoin. They just haven't all been issued yet. This is really just a matter of semantics. Uh, but every, um, every, every time a new block is discovered, which is roughly every 10 minutes, and on average it is every 10 minutes, the, we, uh, a certain amount of Bitcoins get issued. And in the first four year period of Bitcoin, that was 50 Bitcoins per block. So 50 Bitcoins were issued every 10 minutes. Um, and over the course of four years, which is 210,000 blocks, the first, um, the first half of all the Bitcoins ever issued, 10, 10 and a half million of them uh, were issued in that period. So if you do 50 times 210,000, you'll get to 10 and a half million, which is how many Bitcoins were issued then. At that point, at the, uh, at the first block after the 210,000, um, the reward fell to 25 Bitcoins. And so you can imagine half as many Bitcoins got issued over the next 25, or 210,000 blocks. And so I think we went from half of the supply being issued to three quarters of the supply being issued. And this have, having to keep taking place every four years where the reward of, of issuance per block gets cut in half each time. And so we're generally, we're gradually approaching closer and closer to the 21 million. It takes over a hundred years to get there because you get there 
at half a pace each and every single time. And I think that's what uh, this is one video that you saw on the internet where can uh, indicate and showed exactly how many Bitcoins uh, were in existence. And already, I know Alex likes to say it in the announcements, it's like, well, well over 19 million of these Bitcoins have already been issued. And so I think, Alex, it's like 93% of all the Bitcoins that ever will be issued have already been issued. So the maximum inflation, even if somehow all of them were suddenly issued, uh, would be uh, would be pretty small, but it keeps getting cut in half. Um, and we're about a year away now from the next halving. So right now, um, well, I'll, 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 let, I'll let someone else finish it because I feel like I've spoken enough. There's... Uh, we're we're a year away from the supply from the supply that's hitting the market at any given moment in time being cut in half once again. So it's not like the government keeps increasing the debt ceiling and issuing new more money at ever increasing rates. The amount of Bitcoin that's issued, everyone knows exactly how much will be issued when, and that amount keeps getting smaller. That was pretty good. Ant or Stefan, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I don't think there's anything to add. I think Tom explained it very well. So, I mean, yeah, we just, you know, just wait for the halving. Uh, the new incoming supply is going to, you know, drop down the, uh, you know, if you're measuring the inflation rate based on how many Bitcoin exists at that point in time, then, yeah, you can see the inflation rate has come down. And I think uh, we'll just uh, wait and see when the next one comes next year. Is the next one 3.15 per 10 minutes? What is it exactly? 3.125. Yeah. 3.1. 3. 1, 2. 2. It's 3 and an eighth. Yeah. 3 and 1 eighth of a Bitcoin per 10 minute block. 3 billion. Because we're currently at 6.25, yeah? Yeah. Six and, six and a quarter. So we're have, have, have a little bit. A little bit over 300 million side, right? Okay, so I'm just doing the math. So 3.125 every 10 minutes. That means it's going to be 18.75 new Bitcoin every hour. And that will be... 450 a day. 450 for a day. That's crazy. So if you think about it, if there are only 450 new people joining the ecosystem a day and they all want a Bitcoin, that's it. That's all of it. That's amazing. You have to buy it from somebody who's willing to let it go. And this is the reason why you see these crazy um, spikes in the price. Uh, well, so far anyway, I don't know. There's a lot. There's some people who, are th who think that we're done with cycles. We're not going to see any more cycles. Um, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out here, here pretty soon because historically speaking, it starts to ramp about six months before the halving. We have 386 days to go before the halving and then it continues to, uh, to an all, to a peak, basically, typically around 18 months. Now these are averages and this is no guarantee this is going to happen exactly this way again, but I just think that's really fascinating. Good morning. And welcome to Walker. Thanks for joining us, Matt. What's going on, guys? I had a few minutes in between some fiat meetings, so I thought I would uh, jump on in and see what's happening. We are talking about beginner Q&A type stuff. I want to welcome up to the stage Simon Helwig. Good morning. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you can unmute yourself bottom left if you want to ask a question. 
Yeah. Okay. I've been buying Bitcoin since 2016. I sold my house, my motorbike, everything I own. Um, I got out a bit just to cover, like buy back my house, if that makes sense. So I've got no risk, but I've still got a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, on the math side of it, how come it hasn't gone so high when you really think about uh, 21 million is not a lot. So either there's manipulation or people are lying about actually owning and holding their Bitcoins because I'm just confused about why exchanges still happen because I'm still buying as much as I kind of was buying. But of course, because I'm financially secure, I don't need to so much now. But I just don't understand how the price is still what I would call still low when the demand is still there and everybody else that would have bought Bitcoin at these lower prices would still be buying them because where else would you put your money, if that makes sense? So I'm, I'm just taking as much out, out of circulation and I'm sure if millions of people are doing this, how comes the price is still what I would call low? <laughs> so let me see if I understand what you're saying. You don't think that the price is as high as it should be Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, I know. I bought a lot. I sold my house. I thought, okay, I'm in the Western world and I know people are in poorer countries and stuff like that. So their amount that they're putting in is taking a smaller amount of uh, stats or whatever you want to call them. But I, if I've got a bit and I know a few people in my circle, listen. To right. Me, I'm tracking. We, we got it. We got your question. Let, let, let's, let's answer the question. Wicked. What do you think, Ben? So, I mean, I think. And this is this actually ties into the earlier point about the havings and potential impact. But one thing you have to remember is there's 900 brand new coins being mined every day. So I mean, at 30,000 a coin, if we just round it, you know, that's 27 million dollars of brand new Bitcoin that's coming on the market, right? I mean, most of the miners. So just to stay flat, yep. people have to buy 27 million dollars worth of Bitcoin a day right now. Yeah, I mean, it's all relative. You never know. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's buyers and sellers and demand and supply that comes from other places, but just at a very basic level, you know, that's the incoming supply. Walker? Just to add on to that, uh, another angle to probably just keep in the back of your mind is the fact that there is a great deal of paper Bitcoin that is out there being traded by exchanges. Um, Take FTX as a very obvious example where they were, you know, supposedly at a lot of Bitcoin. Um, in reality, they did not. Uh, I would guess that there are many other such scenarios out there where exchanges claim that, yeah, we've, we've got your Bitcoin, sure. Um, but they do not actually have it. Uh, and maybe they have a little bit, but they don't have nearly as much, you know, if there were, a, they're doing some fractional reserve Bitcoin. Um, and so if there were to be a run on that, let's say we all ripped our Bitcoin out of those exchanges, drained them right out, uh, we would see which of them, you know, which of them are able to cover that and which are just going to be caught with their pants. Yep. Swimming naked. I guess. And, uh, and I do think what, that's why, oh, sorry, TZ, let me just finish the point on Walker's thing. I, I do think that's why we, we have seen a lower price than we otherwise would have, because there were many people who put real, real money into Bitcoin thinking they were buying it from an exchange like FTX. And it turned out FTX was not buying Bitcoin on their behalf. They were just keeping their money. And so that had no impact on the Bitcoin price. Um, and it unfortunately ended up to a complete loss of funds uh, for, all, for all these people all over the world. 
which is why we, again, stress not your keys, not your coins. When you buy Bitcoin, you can take physical possession of it. It's not like a stock where you're hoping that someone's holding onto it for you. you so you wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Are, are you saying that people were giving money to FTX and FTX was showing numbers on their screen that they owned Bitcoin, but FTX actually wasn't buying the Bitcoin or, get, or there was nobody actually selling that Bitcoin? Is that what was happening there? That God, is how many, the allegation, yeah. How many billions of dollars are we talking about? Well, in, in terms of Bitcoin, I don't know the exact amount, but we're to, but it was like an eight or nine billion dollar scam in total, including all of the. the imagine, imagine if that eight or nine billion was actually buying Bitcoin. Well, but that up then, TC, okay. what do you think? Yeah, no, I I love this question from Simon, and I'm sure this is something that like a lot of people who hold Bitcoin are looking at and thinking about because the math of it and the distribution of it and the fixed supply of it, all these things figure into what is an extraordinary dynamic. Um, the truth is, and I think the answer to the question is that the price is being set on what I think Greg Foss would call the margins. You know, it's like it's the, the price is set in exchanges. It's not set on the protocol. There, there is no such thing as a price on Bitcoin protocol. So price is an exchange rate. It's the rate at which it's being exchanged for British pounds or US dollars or whatever currency you use. And that's all happening outside of Bitcoin. That's all happening between buyers and sellers. And a lot of those buyers and sellers are not hodlers. They're traders. They're people working on margin, people leveraging up. We have these extraordinary rides up, these extraordinary rides down. And a lot of that has debatable amounts to do with what's going on with the hodl and the supply that's being held and not moving. We see these statistics all the time from Glassnode and, and other analytics people showing you, you know, how many years all this percentage of the supply has not moved. It's, it's really an incredible thing to reinforce some aspect of what's going on, but a direct correlation to the price is debatable. And so basically the bottom line is, is that you're going to see the reflection of the emotion in the trading edge of this asset. So when we're in a bull market, it moves extremely up. When we're in a bear market, it moves extremely down. But zoom out enough. And that's the final thing I want to say is zoom out. And you can see what's going on on a larger time frame. And this thing is just encouraging you to embrace your inner low time preference. Okay, we're going to go with Ant and then Joe Carlosari has come up. So we'll go with him after Ant. I suspect Joe has something urgent to say because he was like banging that. Somebody said something that that triggered the 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 Joe response where he's going to come in here and basically say... It was, it was the margins, man. Sorry. <laughs> All right, Ant, what do you got? Well, are y'all ready for the fun part? So, I mean, this is the fun again. Yeah, we're going to make it fun again. I mean, you have, what did y'all just say? 450 a day is being mined in the new supply, right? And then there's like a bunch of like mysterious hodlers, like hold, I mean, in the next having, uh, you know, you've got all these like mysterious hodlers holding their, their bags and like, you know, hold, hodl forever. They're never going to sell, whatever. So when you put those dynamics together and then you have all these companies that, you know, I say all these, but you know, have more and more companies and big players that are, you know, looking to fill their own bags. I mean, you have like, what did my micro strategy buy the other day? I mean, like you can equate that to days of like mine supply, like how many 
days of mind supply did MicroStrategy just like take off the market right there? Like how much did they secure? I say take off the market. That's not probably not correct, but you guys know what I'm saying. It's like, you know, one big entity comes in with a big buy to, to build up their little war chest and then boom, it's like a domino tipping over because how many of the, you know, how long does it take to replace that supply? And then you've got these hodlers the, that are holding on to their bags who say they're never going to sell. But trust me, if the, if the exchanges, you know, start really do have start having liquidity act uh, issues, then they only have one option, which is to basically like ask for more, you know, slowly, but suddenly. Joe, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. I just wanted to comment on the, uh, the paper Bitcoin with FTX thing, because we actually have numbers on this. So in total, in terms of total sales, for uh, Bitcoin on FTX platform, they were about 920 billion. Now, somebody said they didn't have any Bitcoin. That's, that's not actually accurate. Um, they had Bitcoin, but they didn't, they, they didn't, basically when they were, they were selling their Bitcoin positions throughout, they didn't have enough to match the entirety of the Bitcoin they sold to customers. So there were customers that had sort of like, you know, fake IOUs of Bitcoin on the platform. Um, at one point they were undercapitalized by about 80%. Um, that's near the end, right? But for most of the bull market, they had, based on the bankruptcy records we have so far, they had upwards of 80% of the Bitcoin that was supposed to be owned, but they had to tap into it and sell it. So in all, in total in terms of like paper Bitcoin effect, some of the calculations that you can sort of reverse engineer show that there should have been somewhere between 180 and $250 million of additional buy side pressure. Now to put that into context, you know, like the Grayscale Trust is a $12 billion market cap. Okay, so yes, that 120 million uh, or 100, or sorry, 200 million, that would have been positive buy pressure, but um, it, you know, you have to get into really the billions to sort of really move this market cap. I mean, it's a, it's a massive entity, right? So um, just, just for context. Awesome, thank you. Great stats, Wicked. Other context, I mean, FTX isn't the only one. So there's a lot, there's a much larger one, which I won't name that a lot of people think probably are doing some similar shenanigans. So, who's, who's that? <laughs> well, you know, it starts with a B like Bitcoin. I mean, other context too, we, we talked about uh, buying and selling, but how much of that is happening off exchanges? There's a ton of over-the-counter activity, especially when you talk about miners selling new supply. So there's actually a ton of activity that wouldn't even impact the price because it's not happening in order books. Okay, I think we have thoroughly crushed that. We've also answered the question there, what is paper Bitcoin? Paper Bitcoin is basically fake, not real Bitcoin that people are spending their money on, which is shunting capital away from actual Bitcoin, which affects the price. Um, I wanna thank Simon for coming up, asking that question. One last comment. I feel like Bitcoiners might be a little spoiled. Might be just a little wild. <laughs> because the price right now, year to date, even though we're in a little bit of a pullback from, you know, what it's been doing, the price year to date so far is 77.8%. Granted, it's down from the all-time high, but like the all-time, all-time is in tens of millions of percentage points of gains. So it's like... <laughs> Deep breath. Okay, let's do some other beginner type questions.
Can you guys, and this is just general for the, anybody who wants to answer this, why is there only 21 million? How do you know there's only 21 million? I mean, Jamie Dimon says that at any point, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is going to pop up and go, ha ha, surprise, there's more. Because, why is that not true? Because when Bitcoin started getting issued, starting from the Genesis block, 50 Bitcoin per block was issued. So the short answer is when you run a Bitcoin node, you are verifying every transaction and you are able to independently verify the total number of coins and there's a, there are commands that you can run so for example a common one people talk about is called get tx outset info and so that one uh i guess colloquially it's known as running the numbers and you can use that to independently check the transactions and how many coins were minted or created into existence or mined into existence and basically your bitcoin node is checking all the rules that you know that there were no uh invalid spans or creations of coins and so that's kind of the short answer of how you know as an individual that there is not more than 21 million coins well, that's right. can i go yeah. real quick I just let uh, stefan know that he can't hear me yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, oh, Steph, okay, Steph, so you probably can't hear TC. So th there's also just like the math of it, which is that from Genesis blocks, 50 Bitcoin per block was issued. 210,000 blocks make up that epoch. And when that ends, now 25 Bitcoin per block are getting issued. The next 210,000 blocks and so on and so forth. And so if you play this out through the, I believe it's 32 epochs, uh, you end up with just under 21 million of issuance. Just to so build off that real quick, if I can. Okay, we're good. You can look at the source code for this. It's literally, you know, four or five lines of code. So, um, you know, it's all open source. <laughs> and if you really want to verify, then go ahead and pull up that source code and take a look yourself. It uses something called a bitwise shift. So that's like the only really technical part of it. But it's, you know, it's, it's as simple of a, okay. of a monetary issuance policy as it gets. Like there's nothing so, so, so like so wicked. lines of code or two or you three, guys right? are You guys are telling me that there's nothing hidden in the code and there's no way for something to be hidden in the code. Is that what you're saying? Not, not in that part. I mean, that's, that's one of the few parts that I really understand. And that well, there, one, there's also bit 42, you know, just in case you don't trust that shut, that sliding thing that uh, wicked was talking about. If you don't trust looking at an equation, there's also bit 42, which came in that actually put a hard cap finite supply just in case. So there's actually multiple mechanisms that absolutely enforce it, Alex. Yeah. And you could sneak something into a code base. That's always like the, the thought, but I mean, the, the, with something like Bitcoin, I mean, this thing is being poured over like a lot every single day, whether it's by, you know, people that are interested or whether it's by the, the actual developers or whether it's by you know, actual hackers trying to break into something and get Satoshi's coins. I mean, there's like all kinds of stuff that this thing is being reviewed. But yeah, I mean, you can go see it. It's only like two lines of code. I think maybe the one point that hasn't quite been made yet, because it, it, the allegation is, well, how do you know someone isn't just going to change it, right? It's just code and code gets changed and I download upgrades to all my software all the time. And, and the point is that you, the person operating Bitcoin, if you choose to run a node, which is free open source software that can run on a device as simple as a Raspberry Pi and certainly can run on, on your home computer, you are enforcing the rule. And so if someone tries to change their code and issue a block in which more than the amounts 
that are permitted are issued, your node will reject that block and it will say that this, this breaks the rule, so I'm not going to accept it. And tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all over the world are also running the code. And so what ends up happening if anybody tries to cheat is they simply get caught out at the second that they cheat and get ignored. And, and it, it, this is what creates the enormous reinforcement of the rules. Nobody can change the, the rules because we are the ones who are enforcing the rules. And by we, I mean anyone who chooses to. You don't need permission from anybody. You don't need any kind of special skill. Anyone can, re, can enforce these rules on, on everyone else. And anyone who tries to change the rules simply gets kicked out of the game right away until yeah, they I mean, you could the rules. You could change it to 22 million if you wanted, right? But then, but then not everybody's playing, playing by yourself. That. Yeah. You're you playing by running Bitcoin. Yeah, you'd be running something else. So you'd be running a fork of Bitcoin. And so, and nobody would recognize, and everyone would immediately be able to recognize that what you've got is not authentic Bitcoin because it doesn't correspond. Like, there's a whole lot more detail we could talk to about how everything. How that's a, that's what we call a fork, right? So, you would create your own version of it and everybody else would be like, yeah, we don't like your version. That's so what I tell to the change the code guys. I say, go ahead, fork off. Submit fork the off, code. baby. Submit fork it, it homie. And then Alex said a really cool metaphor, singing just super that. quick. Super quick is like the, the chess one. If you tell people, yeah, hey, sure, why don't we just put a third knight on the board in, in chess? Go ahead. You can, you can play that version of chess. I just don't think you're going to find very many people who want to play that version with you. Yeah. Everybody's going to bail. You'll be playing by yourself and you'll be singing that song all by myself. All by Go ahead, <laughs> third <Joe>. night chess. <laughs> well, just, just remember, as, as silly as, as Jamie Dimon's question is, it's not entirely stupid because there, there was at one, and this is good for beginners just to know, there was at one time, an inflation bug, you know, back in September of 2018, you know, they had this inflation bug where miners could inflate the supply beyond 21 million. And what happened? Those, because of their own economic self-interest, those nodes upgraded the client software, upgraded Bitcoin Core to eliminate the bug. So 2018, to, Joe? 2018, yeah, September of 2018. So, so that the was point one was like, that wasn't actually used, TC. That was one that was caught and... and it, well, there's another one, right? It. So, but that was my point one, is... Yeah. My point is that, uh, like, okay, so as silly as the question is, it's got a very logical answer. Anyone who supports the Bitcoin network, anyone who holds Bitcoin, it's in your own economic self-interest, the hard cap, right? It, 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 that's the beauty of the game theory behind Bitcoin, because why would you want to inflate the supply of Bitcoin uh, beyond uh, your own economic interest, right? It would, it would debase your own currency. So you have all, so if there were some silly Thing that pops up now there's 50 million bitcoins from some thing that was overlooked perhaps because you know obviously as late as 2018 there was something that was overlooked then all that would happen is the nodes would uh basically update the client software and you would basically have a new um uh, version that would not be susceptible to that bug that inflation okay bug. So new question new question uh and by the way we're going to be shifting some people around on the panel because we've got a ton of people uh asking to come up so then this question follows on to this conversation it don't like five shadowy super coders control all changes to Bitcoin. Like, isn't that how this thing works? Well, it's a so the answer. Oh, you, you got time. You got fast. There, this is again, this is a really misleading uh, thing. There, there are five people who are authorized to accept pull requests into Bitcoin Core, which is the reference, reference client. But nobody is forced to run any of the software at the end of the day. And every and everything is open source and everything is reviewable. So if 
if these five people became compromised or if it turned out to be only four people or six people or whatever, and they became compromised and they made changes to the software, you would not be required to run it. The software does not auto update on the, there's no push updates. It, you would just continue to run the software as you chose to run it. And I, I in fact run a couple of nodes and I always run one that's a couple of versions behind because it's always got to be backward compatible just to make sure. And, and so. Nobody, because nobody can determine what you have to run, it's still the ultimate consensus of the tens of thousands of people running nodes that control what the rules of Bitcoin are, not any one particular coder who can arbitrarily go in and make any changes to the code. Stefan, anything else you want to add? Yeah, so anyone who wants to learn more about this, check out an episode I did with Gloria Zhao. She is actually one of the Bitcoin Core maintainers, and I asked her about this as well, just to clarify for listeners to understand what would happen, even if they were hypothetically doing something wrong or bad, what would happen? Well, people don't have to run that code. And there are various checks along the way. So for in people interested in that process, James and Lop has an article called Who Controls Bitcoin Core? So if you search that uh, and you see that article, he also spells out various controls around the release process for Bitcoin Core. And so it's worthwhile understanding a little bit of that. So for so the people who do want to dig further and understand a, a bit about that process, you can read more there. Um, now, to be clear, that article is from, I think, 2016 or 17, um, but uh, yeah, most of it still holds up, so it's worthwhile. Um, but the, the short answer is that Bitcoin is not determined solely by those four or five maintainers. It is determined by the actual users and node runners, and those node runners are independent, and there are, there are even different implementations of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin Core is the main one, but there are actually different implementations also. So this idea that, you know, just a few people could change the supply on their own. No, that's just quite simply wrong and belies a misunderstanding of how Bitcoin works. All right. That was great. Let's do some announcements really fast and then we will keep rolling. I have more questions for you guys. and I'm sure other people do as well. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We do this live on Twitter Spaces, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. This is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple if you cannot catch the live show. A few things. We are helping with a crowdfunding campaign where all proceeds beyond production costs are going to Bitcoin Core and open source lightning development. There was an article in 2014 written by Bitstein called Everyone is a Scammer, and it has been read by the guy Swan, the voice of Bitcoin. Oh, besides Stefan, I guess those are the two main voices of Bitcoin. Stefan's got the, the, the dulcet tones, but Guy Swan does this thing called Bitcoin Audible, and he is reading this article and they put it on vinyl. There's should be a link in the nest if you want to participate in that crowdfunding campaign. Also, in Juneau, Alaska, May 6th, we're doing Bitcoin Bootcamp. I'll be remoting in alongside Sam Callahan, Dom Bay, Dennis Porter, Andy Pitt, Greg Foss. Uh, my understanding is Nat Brunel is going to be hosting this thing. And 
a bunch of union leaders, native corporation, executives, legislators from the Alaska state government and their staffers have been invited. Uh, so we're going to be doing uh, basically kind of a boot camp to help them understand what Bitcoin is. Later on, other shows, Swan Signal Live. Um, is that today? Are you doing, Stefan, are you doing uh, Swan Signal Live with Saifedean today? Yeah, uh, that was actually a pre-record. So it's already been uh, recorded and it is being released in a couple hours. Man, that's ex so exciting. Okay, that's going to be on the Swan YouTube channel at 1 p.m. Eastern. A couple of quick things uh, um, about featured business, featured jobs. Bitlist.com, if you want to list your business. The current one we're featuring right now is Escape to El Salvador. They help with residency, citizenship, and business services for El Salvador. Go to bitlist.com if you want to check that out. Featured job. Clean Spark is hiring a mining operations technician in Sandersville, Georgia, full time. Bitcoinerjobs.com. Finally, Swan is sponsoring the Toxic Happy Hour Pleb Party in Miami on May 18th. Hit the link in the nest for tickets. Right. Okay, more beginner questions. Here's one for you guys. Why doesn't the government just shut this thing down? I mean, if, if, if this thing represents potentially such an, an incredible threat to the power of certain people, why don't they just shut it off? I think the short answer is that they can't, but it's also important to remember there is a principal Asian problem. There are people inside the government who have incentives that are not aligned with the government. So they may personally want to hold Bitcoin. They may personally have relatives, friends, sons, daughters, nieces, nephews who hold Bitcoin, and they may not want to go after them, um, you know, using the state. So I think this notion that the state will shut Bitcoin down, I mean, it is possible that some governments around the world you know, try to ban Bitcoin, they try to take actions against it. This has not, this has happened before. But I think fundamentally, given the decentralization of the ecosystem, the, you know, the ability for people to just use the internet online, it's just too difficult to actually stop the entire system. And so I think that's the short answer is it's just too difficult to stop. It's not, it's probably not impossible, but it's, it's pretty close to impossible. Yeah, it's like, how's the war on drugs going? I'm going to say it's like trying to stop dandelions or drugs or, or anything that's, that has this lifelike characteristic in nature, because every single one of these Bitcoin nodes is a perfect replica of the other. Not all of them are in one country. They're in every country in the world. And so you have to literally go to every country in the world and find every one of these things. And not all of them broadcast their location. Many of them hide behind encrypted services. Um, and it doesn't take much to spin one up. And you could, if the government was coming after them, you could even shut one down. And then they wouldn't see it because it would because it's not around. And then when they leave, you could turn it back on. So it is. It's an incredibly hard. It's an incredibly resilient network. It's not like a uh, website that has two or three data centers backing it up. It's it's literally tens of thousands of data centers uh, backing it up all over the world, operated by whichever individuals in the world choose to run it on relatively inexpensive hardware. So it's really hard to stop until nobody can stop it. All right. Nobody has anything else to add to that. Let's go with Brandon Gentile. Good morning. Do you have yeah, a guys. question for the panel? Yeah, I just had a quick comment and then kind of segueing into the question for the guys. Um, you have a hundred thousand foot view of the the just backing way out the fiat inflationary system. If it had one one hundred thousandth of this scrutiny that the Bitcoin ecosystem does, it wouldn't exist. 
you know, so we sometimes get very technical, obviously, and we, we kind of dive into the weeds on things with even the beginner stuff. But Bitcoin's open source, like someone mentioned earlier, multiple times. I mean, you can go verify, do your own research. It's not, it's not some advertisement to just, hey, just blindly trust, right? That's not what we do here in the Bitcoin community. But if the current system, because it's so opaque and no one can see what's going on, we just have to blindly trust. And if Bitcoin even remotely had that, um, we are off the scrutiny to the fiat system. It wouldn't exist. And I think that's very important to just highlight in talking about the inflationary side of things. That's something that comes up a lot. I, some financial planner earlier that uh, Larry and, and Foss and a bunch of people were going back and forth there. She's promoting Stephanie Kelton's MMT book. So, you know, that leads us to this inflationary versus deflationary. Why is it important? You guys just talked about the 21 million cap and everything. That's a question that comes up a lot and people just have a hard time dealing with that. The importance of the deflationary or disinflationary leading to that eventual cap and, uh, and how that's different than the inflationary system we have now. Hey, Alex, can you hear me all right? Yeah, you're, you're a little fuzzy, but you're good enough. Okay. Go ahead. I'll try to be quick. Uh, everybody around us tornado cash a couple months ago, they government tried to shut it down. It's an open source protocol that allows you to make coins. Two weeks ago, it was used in a crypto hack for $13.1 million. So they can't shut down a simple open source protocol that anybody can use. Are they going to shut down the largest network in the world? It's completely decentralized. And? Yeah, this is why we see all these uh, kind of attacks and FUDs and, and death from a thousand cuts that we talk about. Because you've got this, you know, uh, big ass whale going over, if you can imagine it like that. You've got these tiny little little minnows or whatever you want to call them, even smaller than that, trying to take bites out of this big ass whale. Like it's, th that's how it is. Like they uh, literally like are in a situation that they cannot show the world that they literally cannot stop it. And so, you know, they have to put out these articles, they have to put out these campaigns and, you know, trust me, you're going to see the campaign, you know, once they realize how far this current one about the energy FUD only goes so far, uh, I, I think you're going to see the next one, which is, you know, we talked about the 21 million cap, like, yeah, oh, we need more because then they're going to finally realize like, oh, damn, we should have been buying more and whatever. And instead of fighting it, we should have been just joining the network and participating. And so now, you know, we have this big campaign. Oh, the Bitcoiners are being so selfish that they want to keep 21 million cap. We really need 22 million to prevent the deflationary, you know, death spiral and all this other crap. So, yeah, I mean, it, they literally can't show because if they do, then and, and they fail, then they fail on the world stage. And I mean, it's game over. Just one like really good concrete example, and we've talked about this a little bit here, but how do we measure the inflation in Bitcoin? We measure the supply and, and the rate at which it is inflating and everyone can audit it up to the second and verify. How do we measure the inflation rate in fiat money? Well, we, nobody knows what the actual supply of money is. They keep changing the definitions, this, that, the other. So then they, they try to take a look every month or so at a basket of goods. They have six or seven different measurements, core inflation, CPI inflation. This, that, they keep changing what's in the basket. They keep changing the determination. And so there's no, there's no, re, it's a very subjective thing. And when you say they, this is like five people, right? This is like uh, someone with the authority to say, this is what the government is officially calling CPI or officially calling core inflation. In Bitcoin, it's what is the actual supply that anyone in the world can audit at any moment in time, anywhere? And why is it completely predictable? Because of other things that we've discussed. So it's just a, it's a very objective, transparent, system uh, with rules that, uh, that for which there are no rulers.
And it's completely in opposite, in opposition to the existing system of money where there's a handful of people who decide what the supply is and how inflation will get measured. And none of this stuff is objective and it's all subjective. And there are people in charge, which I repeat it. All right. In a, in a moment, we're going to be going to Chris, then bridge to Bitcoin and then ghost of puppers. Before we do that, though, we were fortunate enough to have Elon available to talk to us about inflation and what causes it, because uh, it's important to discuss. We need to know about it. And then um, we can talk about a little bit about why this matters. I mean, I think a lot of people get it, but it, it, to me, inflation is one of the most important things to understand about money. Go, roll it. So inflation is going to happen no matter what. Huh. If you increase the money supply, um, you get inflation. Right. So there's no, there's not some magical cure for getting rid of inflation. Um, except except to increase the productivity, the output, output of uh, goods and services. So you say like, like what is money? Um, you've got, you've got, you've got these sort of, um, it's basically numbers in a database that's, that, that sum up to some, that come up to some total. Then you've got the uh, output of goods and services of the economy. And the, it, as long as the ratio of money to ratio of, of, of goods and services stays, if that, if that stays constant, you have no, no inflation. If, uh, if you add more money, if you add money to the system faster than you increase uh, goods and services, right. then you have inflation. Um, so all of these COVID sort of stimulus bills uh, were not paid for. They were, they were just generated more uh, currency, more, more, you know, uh, more, more money was, was, was created because the, the, the federal government, uh, the checks never, the, the, the checks always pass, uh, you know, until, unless you had a debt limit, which there's probably going to be some debt limit crisis later this year. But uh, provided you haven't hit the debt limit, the the federal government, uh, unlike state governments or city governments uh, or individuals, can simply issue more money. Um, and that's what they did. Um, I mean, as old saying goes, there's no, there's no free lunch. Um, so uh, if you could just issue massive amounts of money without negative consequences, why don't we just take that to the limit and make everyone a trillionaire? Well, they, I mean, they tried that in Venezuela. How'd that, how'd that work out? Well, they had to eat zoo animals. Right. It's not good, you know. There's no pre-launch. There's, there's not some ability to issue. That's messed up. I think Wicked was next and then, okay, go ahead, Ann. I'm sorry. I, I'm just going to uh, hop, hop in Wicked because I got to run. But just right there, I saw that this morning. That was one of the first things I watched this morning. And it frustrated me a little bit because it's like when you see that, it's obvious that the guy, you know, wherever you have on the scale of how much understanding he has about money, it's obvious that he's speaking about inflation in the right sense that if you add the money, add to the money supply, but don't increase goods and services, like you're going to have inflation. He says it. But then he also supports Dogecoin quite a bit and like pumps this thing. And I don't know how often he pumps it. I don't follow, all, you know, all of his dogery. But at the same time, I mean, if you it only takes a casual review of the of the Dogecoin system to realize that they're dealing with massive inflation every single day because they're increasing their supply by a joke amount. The coin is literally a joke. It was made as a joke and the inflation is a joke. And so it's increasing every single day by a obscene amount. And so what the heck is he doing? You know, when, when I see something like that and I'm like, but then he's pushing the doge. It's like, yeah, I go back to that thing about trust no one during, you know, a one way only accumulation phase 
of a novel asset, hard cap to 21 million. Thanks for having me, guys. So I think an interesting point of what Elon's saying is he's relating, you know, the incoming supply of money, and it can be whatever monetary system you're, you're, you're calling into question, whether it's Bitcoin or dollars or Venezuelan, you know, whatever it is, boulevards or whatever they are. Or anything, right? I mean, Doge, ETH, doesn't matter. Like, he's relating that to the increased productivity of the users who are demanding the money. And so, you know, there's two components here. And one thing that's interesting, I think, when you're considering Bitcoin in particular, is I think there's this kind of compounding effect with Bitcoin where because it is such a predictable and uh, kind of stable um, rate of inflation, it makes it where it's easier for the users to plan their lives, right? Like, and, you know, obviously with the price swings, we don't quite see that yet, but I mean, if you denominate your life in terms of Bitcoin, then it's easier. And that's the key part. And I think a lot of people, you know, will make that transition. And the question is, which users are the most productive? What, right? Which ones have the highest growth uh, both in terms of adoption, but also in terms of personal, you know, productivity gains. I think Bitcoin kind of accelerates you into this like hyper productive mindset. Um, and, you know, these other shit coins don't and fiat most definitely does not. So, you know, you've got kind of these two things coming to a head where you've got the user base growing, you've got the users themselves becoming more productive, and you've got a dwindling you know, inflation rate that gets halved every four years. I mean, do the math, you know, it's like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And the, the economy is a great point, Wicked. I mean, the, the economy is a, is a closed loop. You know, this is the Ben Bernanke thing. You, you, you do something 20 years ago and he creates the real estate bubble, right? You're injecting things into the early 2000s and then it creates this and things, every action has equal and opposite reaction. And this is where this, the deflation comes in, like we talked about earlier. The every Satoshi becomes more valuable over time as all prices go to towards zero. They all go to their marginal cost. As you know, Jeff Booth talks about this all the time. And that's what's really hard for people to wrap their head around. We've all grown up in this inflationary environment. So we it's really mind bending. Just really start thinking about deflation and what that means for your life. When there's only 21 million in, in a car now is one Bitcoin. And then maybe in 10 years, it's you know, 10 million Bitcoin. And then 20 years after that, it's a million Bitcoin. Or um, yeah, or sorry, a million Satoshis. So you're, you're going down and then it's 100,000 Satoshis, then it's 10,000 Satoshis. And that keeps happening every, you know, after every couple of decades, that just keeps going down and down. Your purchasing power actually grows. So that's where people have this hard time realizing that, you know, how do, how do we do this? We need more currency in the system. You don't, each Satoshi just buys you more over time. And that's the thing that people have a very hard time getting their head around. An interesting experiment is to just get some Bitcoin <laughs> and then watch what happens with it. Just sit on it and, and check it every now and then, you know? It's, it's amazing. Uh, let's go with Chris Sanderson. Good morning and welcome. You have a question? Gotta unmute yourself there, Chris. My bad, couldn't find the unmute button. Hey guys, Alex, Tomer, Stefan, thanks for everything you do. I uh, appreciate it. I'm over here in flyover country with two quick questions. Um, one is why don't we have a naming convention 
that is somewhere in between one Satoshi and one Bitcoin. Why don't we have all, you know, we do. one million Satoshis. Like one million oh. Satoshis could be a Nakamoto or, or something, you know? That, we just can't agree to change it. Bitcoin's very hard to change and you can't really get consensus and agreement on even there's, social things. Like there's quite, there's like quite a few of people. There's quite a few people who like the idea of, of a bit being a hundred Satoshis, but that hasn't quite reached consensus. But I right, think it might catch it, on one, once, you know, once a hundred Satoshis equals a dollar, you know, that would be at a, that would be at a million dollar price tag. It might catch on because then you'll have one bit would be equal $1, right? So yeah. who knows? Look at this. I bum rush the stage and bum rushes the stage. Okay. So look, Satoshis, it's Satoshis. There are 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis max. Actually, we won't even get there. Okay. Everything is Satoshis. Actually in the protocol, there is no such thing as a whole Bitcoin. That's just a convention for a hundred billion Satoshis. So there's been a lot of people over the last few years that have been really pushing for what we call a SATS standard, where in exchanges and wallets, you see the number of Satoshis instead of seeing this large number of decimal points. Um, I think today we're in a lot better place around that than we were a year or two ago, and it'll keep changing. And anyone can come up with any naming convention for any group of them, as long as it just exchanges and converts to Satoshis, which are the base unit. So it, it's one of these things where we're, we're playing psychology games with naming and allowing your brain to wrap around big numbers. Um, there's a lot of people working on different conventions to try to help people with this. But at the end of the day, the increase in purchasing power that was just being discussed around individual Satoshis is going to help with that anyways. Because instead of spending hundreds of millions of Satoshis, you'll be spending millions and then hundreds of thousands and then thousands. And the numbers are going to kind of become a little bit less large over time naturally because of what was being discussed previously. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% in agreement with that. However, when you try to orange bill somebody and, you know, they ask, well, how much would this steak dinner be? And you give them some number in the hundreds of thousands or millions of Satoshis, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not a, an easy transition to make. So I, I just you know what? It is, a, it is an easy transition if you go back and you do the math. All right, go back and do the math. Figure, hold on, figure out how much would that steak dinner be in Satoshi's 10 years ago and how much is it now? And then just show them the difference. That, that, I mean, you know, no, when, I, when my I, girl first started taking a look at this thing, she did the math on a cup of coffee, a cappuccino, and it blew her mind. And, and what would blow their mind even more is, hold on a second, Ant, real quick. What would blow their mind even more is if you go back 20 years and what does that steak dinner cost and what does it cost now? So, you know, you can, you can do it both ways. And, it's, and, and in regards to the, and in regards to the, uh, to the, to the idea of a naming convention, there's no naming convention with fiat. It's a thousand dollar bill. It's a $10 bill. It's a hundred dollar bill. I mean, it's just going to be a Satoshi. I, I agree with TC. Can't. Yeah, look, I mean, it's funny because uh, this is now, I guess, the third cycle. I wasn't here for the first conversations around it, but this is, you know, in the, in the last cycle, uh, this came up back again and it was like bits or sats. And, and there is an old, actually, there's a couple old tables. Like you can go to the Bitcoin wiki page and like all this, these old tables that show like lists of Bitcoin denominations down to like 
even the finny, which is one that a lot of people aren't aware of. And like, there's all these different like millibits and all this other garbage. At the end of the day, though, for me, and I understand it is sometimes hard to make that conversion. But one of the light bulbs moment that goes off is whenever you realize the 100 million sats into one Bitcoin or that make up one Bitcoin, you can express that as one and then, you know, 100 million, like a bunch of zeros, or you can go one point or you can go like point and then eight zeros. So because of that, like if you were to go, how much is one sat? Well, that's like zero point and then seven zeros and then one. So that's one sat, right? But you could also get rid of all those leading zeros and all those decimal zeros and just go one sat because of the way the math works. If you do, you know, uh, 2000 sats, then that would be, you know, point zero and then all the way down. And then you get like a two and then like 2000 sats. So it's like, it's, it, the math is really easy. And as far as what, you know, what it's called, I mean, Satoshi called it coin, right? In the code base. So, I mean, they're coins. There's 21, there's 2.1 quadrillion coins in the system. And well, when you start breaking up all the, all the denominations, that's when it gets like really confusing. You talk about confusing people. So to well, be fair, I, to, to push be, back maybe let like Chris ask this. You know, I was just going to say, if I want to buy a, if we could only say things in cents, you know, and I want to buy a tractor and it's, you know, 200,575 cents, you know, it just, it complicates things. It uh, doesn't have to. All. But uh, I, I, doesn't I would, have to. If you think of it, think of it like, you know, sats. If, if you think of it like this, like you have large capital expenditures and you have little daily expenditures, right? You might buy coffee, you might buy dinner, you might buy whatever. These are little expenditures. You know, if you go back in time and you look at the bimetallic monetary systems that humans have used for thousands and thousands of years, you would use silver for little purchases and you would use gold for large capital expenses. I don't see why it has to be any different. Humans figured that out for thousands of years and we had no problem wrapping our minds around that. So. By the way, that was a really good question, Chris, evid yeah. evidenced by the fact that T both TC and Ant rushed the stage. <laughs> what, what, Chris, you have another well, question, right? Yeah, I do have one other question and you, you can choose to take it or- Yeah, you're up here. Let's go. Fine. What's your other question? Uh, next, next question is, uh, in the United States here, at least, am I right in understanding that every time that I um, use my Bitcoin to make a purchase, that I'm, I'm creating a taxable event. I either have a capital gain or a capital loss every time. Is that, is that correct? I mean, provided- Well, I, I, you know, according to the letter of the law, I believe that's probably correct. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not going to tell is, you what- It is you... correct. It is correct according to the law, but the the beauty of a commodity is that you can spend and replace immediately and there's no wash rule. So effectively, um, if you if you spend Bitcoin and then you replace it immediately, you've effectively um, reduced your your tax exposure by doing so. Not only that, I mean, by the way, Peter is absolutely correct. I do this in practice like I, I just this last week bought some air airplane tickets and I did it through an app where I got a bunch of sats back uh, and it was an instant lightning transfer and I just re-upped my lightning wallet with new sats right after that. But the other part of that is, you know, if you think about the where the world is moving to in terms of 
there will probably be lightning transactions going constantly all the time in tiny little increments all over the world to the tune of probably maybe billions of transactions a day eventually. Mm-hmm. Like if we see that world, <laughs> are, 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 are you, are you telling me that there's going to be some IRS agent sitting there tracking those billions of transactions and saying, oh my gosh, Chris, you, you spent $4 and 75 cents and you had a capital gain of 22 cents on your coffee today. I'm coming after your ass. I, I just don't, I don't think that's realistic. Well, yeah, I hope you're right. It does seem like, you know, you talked about shutting down Bitcoin, which clearly, you know, the government cannot shut down Bitcoin, but let's say they did go after 50,000 of us who do buy coffee with Bitcoin and, you know, mm. raise all hell. And You see, you, you bring up a good point, but this is the, this is the witch hunt problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing something that they don't like, you know, may, maybe they have to witch hunt, but in the words of Samson Mao, the solution to that is if there's a hundred million Bitcoiners doing it a day, how the hell are they going to witch hunt a hundred million people? This is right. a simple math equation. There's resources and there's limits to what anybody can do. There's a big difference between having a law and enforcing a law. Those are two totally different things. And if the human race all at once just pivots and, and you know, you think of it like just a massive school of fish, just exit stage left. It's like, what really, from a practical pers- perspective, are they going to do? Yeah. There's also bipartisan laws, you know, trying to make small purchases in Bitcoin non-taxable. And so I mean, those haven't gotten passed, obviously, but I mean, just the fact that they're out there and people are thinking about it, you know, in the government, I think kind of at least shows that there's, there's a step in the right direction. Right. And who knows, you know, hopefully that will pass sometime soon. But I think what really needs to happen is, you know, like the infrastructure for payments needs to be built out more, right? We need to actually be able to spend our Bitcoin at, you know, regular retail stores all over the place. And and once people get the idea that like, oh, okay, Bitcoin's just money, right? It's better money, but it's just money. You buy shit with it. Then, you know, the next, the next thing that's going to happen is, is the dominoes are going to fall with our representatives. And we're going to say, hey, I want to fucking spend my Bitcoin without having to like, you know, keep track of every single stupid little like one penny capital gain and loss. Right. For sure. You know, there's another, since you're, since you're in a flyover state, um, I'm assuming that that strike is uh, available. So there's another way to inject uh, Bitcoin into the uh, marketplace without incurring that tax event. And, you know, that is by using strike because the individual can, can directly convert uh, cuck bucks that you place on strike and the, the vendor can then receive that um, in SATs. So that that's another way to do it. And what Alex was talking about earlier too is loading a gift card um, and then uh, uh, replacing that is also another way to be able to, um, so, th- so they're kind of way- workaround ways um, that, that we as individuals can do to promote um, j- injecting SATs into, uh, into the uh, marketplace. Like yeah, it. you I can, like it. Thanks, man. You can you can buy gift cards and get sats back, like somewhere between one and a half to to in some cases six and a half percent. Like I I just texted a buddy of mine a couple of minutes ago. I'm like, hey man, you got a Cabela's near you? And he's like, no, but we got a Bass Pro Shop, and they sell ammo. And I'm like, hmm, six and a half percent back in these sats. Now you could my tweet. 
Wait a second, six and a half? <laughs> no, dude, I was in there really looking at that shit platform, earlier. Man. So good. Platform. The Bitcoin company has 10% right now, bro. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. And you I mean, you can buy gift cards like to to Chipotle and to, to Starbucks and whatever, and literally walk in there. They're not gonna KYC you, man. You know, so it's like it, yeah, lots of cool stuff you can do. Well, can you imagine the government backlash too, Chris? I mean, again, if, if that many people are getting, you know, Bitcoiners, uh, you know, for crying out loud, just think of the the <laughs> voice Bitcoiners have. I mean, it's just that's just a non-starter. In the next few years, Bitcoin might be a massive topic just in this next election cycle in 2024. And just by 2026, for sure, it might be the single issue that's going on and what's happening. You know, we extrapolate this out a few years, inflation and what's happening. So um, the, the government's going to change a lot. And we are the government at the end of the day. I mean, Jeff Booth talks about this too. Brandon. We are. For, yeah. Brandon, mm-hmm. thank, thank you. Thank you, Greenpeace. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren, exactly. uh, for being the mouthpieces to uh, inject this conversation into the political process. 100%. Tomer or Stefan, anything else to add to this? By the way, Chris, thanks for coming up and thanks for asking the questions. Appreciate you guys. Take care. Uh, nothing is amazing. Yeah, same. It's just you, you use your common sense. Right? Like sometimes you might go mile over the speed limit or a couple of other things. Yeah. You don't want to do anything sloppy, but, but there's also, you know, you don't need to account for every situation. So. Yeah. Or, you know, in the words of Larry Lepard, what did he say? <laughs> General Lepard, he had one of the best, uh, sayings on it. He's just like, just flood them, you know, fuck them. Yeah. Overwhelm the system. All right. Uh, Ghost of Puppers. Good morning. You have a question? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me up here. Um, I was trying to orange pill this uh, guy at work, and he came up with an interesting piece of stuff that I haven't really thought about. He's basically, I was, you know, orange pilling him and all good and everything, but he said, you know what? Um, you have no idea. This this whole thing was created by the uh, the CIA and NSA. So and I said, basically, it doesn't matter who created it. It's completely decentralized. Um, you know, the CIA director can't do anything about it now. The nodes and the, the miners all decentralized. Um, and he basically said, my friend, you have no idea what kind of software the NSA has. It's beyond your comprehension. He basically said, you know, they have, they have the ability to break any random numbers. You know, so going back to mining <laughs> algorithm. Like a yeah. magic. Like a exactly. magic. So he basically said, you know, going back to the, the hashing algorithm, SHA-256, they have the ability, um, you know, to crack that or to backdoor and, and figure out the RNG faster than anybody else, thus centralizing the miners. So Okay, Here, here's the, here's the also, thing. Are they also flying around miniature helicopters in our blood veins? No. Okay, well, here's the, here, here's the problem, all right? I'm going to encourage you to take a look at this book uh, called Soft War. It's written by Major Jason Lowry, United States Space Force. And he talks about how human beings for thousands of years, in some ways, unfortunately, have constructed these abstract power hierarchies where we sort of place certain people in positions of power and then we revere them like gods. And I would suggest that, like, that's what's going on here. There's another uh, interesting book that I was reading recently talking about this birthright about how like human beings have this really weird propensity to prostrate themselves before something that they perceive as powerful and they ascribe all of this power to it. And they're like, Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. There's nothing we can do. I mean, I have to, 
get on my knees and rub my face in the dirt because this thing is so, like, you know, the pharaohs of the Egypt and all that other kind of stuff. Understand, there are humans who have figured this out. The fact that other humans tend to prostrate themselves before things that they don't understand or think are super powerful. And then they, and, and, you know, they use this as a method of control. And this is essentially how the human race has been constructed for a really long time. And Jason's basic point is, is that Bitcoin flattens that entire structure out and you don't really need it anymore. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that. Maybe have your friend read that book too. Go ahead, Tomer. Yeah, I, I think just to elaborate on what you're saying, it's like your friend has regrettably subordinated himself to the belief in magical powers that these people have that they don't actually possess. There's, there's plenty of ways to validate. And if you just, you, you were talking about SHA-256 as an example. If you think about it, it takes any file of any size, much larger than 256 bits, and compresses it to a fingerprint that's only 256 bits in length. It is impossible to reverse. You cannot look at, at something and think, well, you don't even know what the original size of the thing was. Right? You don't know if it was 256 bits or 257 bits or 285 gigabits or 231 terabits. There's no way for you to know what went into it. So there's no way for you to even start to guess as to what size to start with to guess stuff out of it. And, uh, and, and the, so there's lots of ways, even if you're not as smart as all the people at the NSA, to be able to ascertain these things. The actual cryptographic formulas uh, and, and the notion of, the, um, uh, of why they can't be reversed are widely published as, as open source uh, scientific mathematical knowledge. Um, and there are proofs that you can follow as to why they are uh, hard to uh, Reverse. And, and again, when I say hard, I don't mean just challenging. I mean, computationally hard to the point where there isn't enough energy in the universe to run it through, um, through brute force mechanisms. And brute forcing is the only way that you can attempt to crack any of these codes. So uh, th th there's a lot of history behind here. And I think, you know, there's, it's certainly true that the NSA and the CIA and other agencies from all over the world can, uh, can write software that has backdoors in it. But this thing is open source and it's been really, really, really well scrutinized. And if it did have backdoors, the incentive to exploit those backdoors is there and we would have seen it exploited by now. Yeah, there's a 1.1 million, you know, Bitcoin stash just sitting there waiting for someone to steal. So good luck. I, I would ask, I would add maybe one, one other last point is these same security features that are in Bitcoin are not exclusive to Bitcoin. SHA-256 and elliptic curve digital signature are what's behind most of the security backing a lot of military technology and a lot of the banks and, or all of the banks and almost everything you see that's, that's uh, labeled with a lock on the internet is using the exact same primitives uh, that Bitcoin uses. So Satoshi used well-proven uh, building blocks to assemble Bitcoin, things that were known before. You didn't create any new kind of, Bitcoin contains no type of cryptography that's unique to Bitcoin. It uses mature, proven, or like battle-tested uh, cryptographic right, uh, primitives uh, to achieve all of its security. The CIA must have had a backdoor on Signature and uh, Silicon Valley Bank too. 
All right. Uh, moving on. Bitcoin Pleb, BTC Plebeian 21. Good morning. You have a question. Morning. Yes, I have a question prepared. It's um, So I understand that having cuts the issuance of new Bitcoin in half, which constricts new supply. But in prior cycles and in the future, whether another cycle happens or not, what led and can lead to increases in demand? So basically, supplies constricted the halvings in 12, 16, and 20, and the U.S. dollar value of Bitcoin went up. Was this all due to the reduction in supply, or was demand also in the equation? If so, where did it come from? Thanks. Oh, that's a great question. I, I'll, demand comes from many sources. Uh, one, one is people becoming aware of the fact that there is a constrained supply, scarce, secure alternative to fiat money. And how that word spreads is, you know, in part through programs like the one you're listening to right now, uh, internet groups, you know, through, throughout the years, Bitcoin had a, a user forum, a, a Bitcoin talk, uh, org. It then went on to be most popular on Reddit. It's now very popular on Twitter. There's lots of different places where people provide education. And as people hear about it and want to try some of it, then that's where the demand increases come from. You take a look at a huge event like Michael Saylor's decision to put his entire company's treasury in Bitcoin and the advocacy that he has personally provided for Bitcoin and the explanation for it. All of this stuff persuades people. And once they're persuaded, they demand it. And that's where uh, it comes from. That demand also gets facilitated by the growing number of Bitcoin companies that are making Bitcoin available to people. So there's almost an endless, you know, in all these conversations that people are talking about that they have with other people, these are conversations that ultimately lead to the generation of further demand. And so that is that demand and supply are what drives the price. Supply, nobody can alter. Demand, we can all influence. I think another aspect that we see a lot happen with Bitcoin cycles is kind of this mania type phase where demand is also starting to come from, you know, not just adopters who are using it as their money, right? Who just consistently demand it because they're earning more than they spend, but also from speculators. So there's people coming in thinking, oh, I can make a quick buck by buying now and selling higher, right? And so you get these like kind of mania cycles where you get, you get a lot of speculators who come in and, you know, they're all planning to sell. Um, and, you know, by the end of it all, you know, maybe a, a few of them actually learn a thing or two about Bitcoin and become, you know, hardened adopters, uh, but the rest leave. And then that's when you get the bear market, right? So, um, and it's really difficult, I think, to, to escape these cycles because they're so psychologically driven and humans are greedy and, it, and Bitcoin kind of plays on human greed in a lot of different ways. Thank you. And I also wanted to just throw in there that uh, to the prior question from someone else that I believe Senator Lummis and a, another Democratic, sen a Democratic senator that partnered with her put forth a bill to make that transactions under 600 US dollars would be uh, not taxable. But I think that bill passed, of course, but it was, uh, it was presented and uh, put on the floor of the Senate. So I'm throwing it out there as well. Thank you. Yeah, one of these days, one of these days they'll catch up to the rest of us and they'll learn that Bitcoin is just money. New Year's. All right. I'm multitasking, so 
here we go with the next one. We've got Bitcoin for president. Good morning. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. How are you doing? I'm good, was, man. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, uh, what do you guys think? How far do you think we'd be along in the adoption phase if they didn't pull that? That move in 2020 that we all know was about to separate, divide uh, families and people in general, ideologies, behaviors, everything. Do you think we'd be further along the, the path of, you know, just Bitcoin being the number one currency in the prison? Or do you think we would be less along the line because we're more together, more meetups because, you know, where did the Bitcoin meetups go? The first one I ever went to was a 2021 conference over there, the show conference now. But that's... Um, all right, let's, let's try to address the, the question. Uh, this might be a little, I mean, what you were saying might be a little outside the Overton window for a lot of people. I, I feel like it was a little vague and alluding to some things that like kind of, you know, inside baseball kind of stuff that, Maybe people know about, maybe they don't, but, um, I'm going to just in short say that I don't, I don't think it would, I don't think it matters to Bitcoin adoption. We're going to keep rolling. Uh, Operation Libertas. Good morning. Welcome brother. Yeah. You might want to, uh, skip over this since you just kind of glossed, you kind of covered it, but I just wanted to reply to that last question would, I think what the point he was saying was maybe like the COVID lockdowns was somehow like an attack on Bitcoin or something. And maybe I have that wrong, but for me, that was kind of the wake up call. Like I had finally started to understand the utility of Bitcoin and its principles and all the things that it had answered. And I just hadn't pulled the trigger until I saw the money printer start going burr. And now I, I I knew right then at the beginning of 2020 what was coming down the pipe. And that's when I just finally had to like bite the bullet, learn what I didn't know about Bitcoin yet and start buying. And the, you know, that's what, so I, I feel like a lot of people got in at that time. And that was right before we had this all time high, which I think was a result of, you know, larger investors too, but probably thinking kind of along those same lines. So I think, Again, like most things, an attack on Bitcoin just helped spur it. And that would just be my reply to that, if I had his question correct. All right, Greg, good morning. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, it's Foss. Um, I'm trying to bite my tongue until 12 p.m. But, uh, you know, the answer to that is COVID accelerated Bitcoin adoption. Uh, very simply because of the government response. Uh, prior to uh, the, the government going crazy with the money printer, there was a mathematical chance of escaping the debt spiral. It wasn't likely to happen, but there was a mathematical chance. Now there is no mathematical chance of, esca of escaping this debt spiral. So the, if we are in fact inferring the response to COVID, uh, you can think about the lockdowns, but you can also understand that the money printer going burr to the extent that it did makes it 100% certain that we will never escape the fiat sp uh, debt spiral. So we have passed the point of no return mathematically. So it drove a nail into the coffin. 
So you might think of it as being bad because you didn't get to have the meetups, but it made it mathematically certain that the U.S. dollar will never, I repeat, will never escape the fiat doom loop. So it's over and there's only Bitcoin. I hope uh, I hope I inferred your question correctly. Yeah, I would tend to, to agree with all that. I mean, that's with the the truckers, everything that spurred on, you know, 2020 and everything after that, the, the war in Ukraine, everything that was spurred on after that, I think woke, it was still a long way to go, but we, it woke a ton of people up. So I would, I would agree with all that. Tomer or Stefan, do you have any other thoughts on this? Uh, sorry, I was, my face is glitching. I couldn't hear the question. Okay. No worries. I don't really have anything that I think, I think Greg and others have kind of nailed it. It, it, it may be cut both ways in some degree, but for the most part, it made a lot of people start talking about a lot of things that were, that, that either they didn't believe in or were outside what they were prepared to believe in for. That's fair. I think, I think that's probably right. Okay. Here's a question that's coming in from Telegram. This is from Rod Sack. He says, it's clear that al it's almost impossible to shut down Bitcoin, but what about outlawing it? So I would... I'm going to, I'm going to kind of paraphrase this and rephrase it a little bit into two questions. First is, what do you guys think the probabilities are that Bitcoin gets outlawed in the United States and the EU and why? And what if they actually did? What does that mean? Um, I think it's very unlikely that it gets outright outlawed. I think the more likely or kind of you might see regulate more regulations come into Bitcoin uh, and regulating Bitcoin companies um, in in those countries. But fundamentally, I think we'll see competition and we'll see people go to other countries, whether that's El Salvador or somewhere else. Um, I just don't see it as going to get banned. I just don't. I just don't see that because I think it's clearly understood as a commodity. It's clearly understood that you know, people can hold property. Uh, and so I just, I, uh, I think it's very unlikely. That's how I'm seeing it at least. But not impossible, right, Stefan? And that's how you always have to set up your probability distributions, people, is as the information changes, you got to change your thesis. I agree with Stefan. It's unlikely, but not impossible. That being said, it opens the door for incredible game theory if it does get outlawed. Now, does it get outlawed at the federal level or do the states? And then you start thinking about the periphery countries like Canada. And is there a competitive advantage in Canada if the United States outlaws Bitcoin? What does Canada do? We probably outlaw it too because we're run by a doorknob just like you guys are. But at the end of the day, there's be, there'll be countries that don't outlaw it that actually embrace it like El Salvador, but far bigger countries than El Salvador. So, you know, it, it you got to Always set up your probability distributions and then understand the game theory that will, it, it would be incredibly unlikely, it, almost impossible that the entire world of centralized governance decides to outlaw Bitcoin. In fact, I would, you know, place my left testicle that it would be impossible only because the world isn't that close. If Russia did it, then the United States would tend not to do it and vice versa. If the United States did it, Fucking Putin would be all over it. Like, you fucking morons. You guys played right into my trap, you know? 
anyway, I'm driving. I hope I was clear that uh, there's morons on all sides and you got to play your probability distributions accordingly. <laughs> you know, Foss is usually pretty fiery, but when he's driving, he's like extra fiery. So maybe you should drive and join Cafe Bitcoin more often, Craig. He's Brandon. He's rolling. He's rolling. Yeah. Rolling. Yeah. 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 Game theory. I, I, you know, that, that is the answer right there. Game theory plays out like Greg just said, and, and it's all good for Bitcoin, right? I mean, it's almost better in a way if they, if they ban it, because you can't ban it, right? You can just ban yourself and things would just absolutely take off. It goes exponential. And overall, in the macro, it's less and less each day, like we just talked about earlier, every, you know, next two years, four years, this government starts turning over, you know, you the older generations, the hippie bubble will start leaving office. We're already seeing, we've been seeing the last couple of years. And they will continue to switch and it'll be less and less likely every day, almost exponential probably in the next few years. And in Wall Street, I think truly wants to get theirs. You, you see BlackRock, a lot of these different people coming in and they want to get theirs in the Bitcoin world. And that's probably why you see a lot of that going on uh, right now, this price depression and FUD and things of that nature. So I think it's not super likely, but it is a chance, like Greg said. And one thing I'd add is, you know, when you're doing this, thought exercise and you're, you know, you're living in whatever country you're living in and you may or may not be worried about Bitcoin becoming banned in that country. I mean, one of the most important things to do, regardless of what probability you put on there is to take your Bitcoin into self-custody. Because if you hold your own keys and you, you know, are the sole owner of your Bitcoin, you're not you know, relying on a custodian or an exchange or whatever, then it doesn't matter if they ban it because you have your own keys and if they come knocking on your door. I mean, shit, like you all have heard about boating accidents. I mean, there's just like, it's just such a, like, it's just not going to happen that they're going to come and try to confiscate your Bitcoin if you're holding in self custody. But I tell you what they will do if they do come up to Bitcoin in, in some, you know, ridiculous fashion is they'll go to the, the, the central points of, of, of pain points, right? Like the exchanges, they'll fucking, they'll ban it there. Right. And if you have any left there, you're probably going to be forced to sell it or like, or even worse, they'll just fucking confiscate it. So like, yeah, you want to, you want to just be prepared for, even if it's a very small percentage that you think it could happen, you want to be prepared and you want to have your Bitcoin in self-custody regardless. So I agree with everything that, that Wicked said. And the reality is, is that as long as somebody else um, wants Bitcoin, there's no stopping me from transacting with that person um, and exchanging value that way. So if there's a farmer around me that that is willing to sell eggs or beef or or corn or whatever it is for for Bitcoin, then we can do that transaction privately. Um, the other thing I want to say is that uh, you know I'm 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 an older guy. I'm I'm 59 years old, and um, I remember when I was younger, anything that was banned, I wanted. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to play with it. I wanted to have it, whatever it was, if it was banned. So every time when we look at, you know, countries that have tried to ban, and I say try, I want to emphasize that, try to ban Bitcoin, not only does Bitcoin be become stronger, it, at least in my, you know, in what I understand of it, every time it happens, comes stronger. That was why earlier I said to uh, Brandon, you know, thank goodness for Elizabeth Warren and uh, and Greenpeace because they are just moving this. They are the they are the marketers for for Bitcoin, and so um, 
I think it's one of those things. It's it's kind of funny. Every time the government or a government tries to do something um, counter to counter the threat of Bitcoin, it seems like it just seems like every time they do it, it just backfires and they end up with more Bitcoiners. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Just a, another very quick point in terms of addressing the likelihood. Like you need a lot of people to have consensus that it should be banned in order to ban Bitcoin in, in any regions. And what we actually see is nothing of the sort. While there are some people who want to restrict some measure of mining on Bitcoin and some other people who want to try to modify Bitcoin, for the most part, uh, we actually see the every aspect of the government acknowledging that Bitcoin is valued by some people, including up to and including the government that has seized a whole bunch of Bitcoin uh, and is transacting and is selling it for U.S. dollars. That, that means they don't, don't want it, but it also doesn't mean they consider it to be illegal. Right? But you don't see the government seize cocaine and then sell it on the open market when they seize drug deal. But when they do seize Bitcoin, they sell it on I mean, the open market. Tomer, I don't know. That, <laughs> that's a different story, but they, they seize uh, cocaine. They don't, public, they don't publicly sell it auction. Let's put it there. No, it's you try to go somewhere that is not through some other Overton window in this group and just get pushed right in. Maybe right. they understand that if they don't get, maybe they understand that if they don't sell it, that it just makes the uh, network stronger and that uh, value is then distributed equally amongst all the other holders. We are approaching the end of the show. We got about six minutes left here. We're not closing spaces today. So you guys know Swan Spaces is going to stay open after the show today. We've got, we're doing basically a Swan Spaces takeover with Larry Lepard, Greg Foss, and the crew, uh, General Lepard, and uh, these guys, some of my favorites in the industry. So they'll be continuing to do that. Let's make some move to make some closing comments here. Uh, if I'll ask you guys a question to prompt closing comments, if there was one piece of advice you could give to somebody who's brand new to Bitcoin, they're trying to figure out what this thing is, whether they should buy it or not, whether they should trust it or not, whether it's going to be here in 10 years or not, what would your one piece of advice be to them? We'll kind of go around the panel and then we'll move to wrap up this portion of cafe Bitcoin before we keep rolling with Swan, Swan Spaces with General Lepard and Greg Voss. So let's start with Operation Libertas. What's the one thing you would tell somebody? Sorry, man. I had some neighbors talking to me. Skip over me. All right. Brandon. Yep. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, I, my question to every, every single person is, what are you storing your finite time and energy in? So one question, you, you have finite time and energy. There's only so much time on earth. You spend your time and energy toiling away from family, friends, away from your hobbies, away from your calling, and you have to store it in something. Are you going to store it in a finite container or are you going to store it in an infinite container, you know, a bucket with a hole in it, an inflationary hole? So what are you storing your wealth in, your time and energy? Well said, Peter. I, I don't even, what is Operation Libertas? That's located right next to you. 
Uh, is that your closing comment? What is Operation Libertas? Good God, Peter. No, I was just you you said you said something about Operation. I thought that was a question. Okay. No. Closing comment. Um, I guess the closing comment is really once you experience self-custody, once you experience um one of the properties of Bitcoin that has drawn you toward to it, and you actually experience that property and how it works for you and for everybody else in the ecosystem, I think it is a it is a really reveal a revelation. For me it was um self-custody owning something for the first time, really owning something that nobody can take away for the first time in my entire life was something that was really a revelation for me. And um, once I experienced that, I was like, oh my God, this thing is just so much bigger than I thought it was. And it is so much more valuable than I thought it was. And it is so much deeper than I thought it was. And after thousands of hours of listening, talking, asking questions, reading, studying, I feel like I am no deeper down this hole than when I started. And it is just one for a curious mind. It is just a beautiful thing. And for a curious mind, I think it is going to be um, a revelation for the rest of humanity. I really, truly believe that. I think this is something that changes the course of humanity. It is a once in a humanity kind of event. Wicked. One piece of advice. Take your Bitcoin into self-custody because that's really the only thing that matters at the end of the day. And if you don't have it in self-custody, then you're probably going to get wrecked. So do it before you get wrecked. Greg Foss, any words of advice for someone who's brand new? Yeah, so someone who's brand new is wrestling with the fact if they should allocate any of their net worth to Bitcoin. And I'll say very simply, there are you're going to have a chance to experience less than five asymmetric trade and investment opportunities in your entire career. Okay, I've been doing this for 35 years. I've only seen four asymmetric investment opportunities in my life of 35 years of managing money. And this is by far the best one. So that's my opinion. But if you're too fucking smart and you know with 100% certainty that Bitcoin will fail, then you haven't done your homework. So there's very few things that are 100% certain in life except for fiat debasement. And if you're too fucking smart and you think the NSA has figured out how to crack the fucking Bitcoin code, I don't have time wasting my fucking time on you. You're a moron. Keep staying poor. This is the best opportunity I have ever seen in my life. And if you are 99.999% certain you're always right, then go fuck yourselves. You're an idiot. Thank you. <laughs> Good God. Well, I mean, to be fair, it is like a $500 billion honeypot, right? That's a pretty attractive target. Tomer, uh, any words of advice for someone named? Uh, it really is. If, you, if you're new to this and you haven't given it a look, take, take a look at how many people have come around to be persuaded that this is a revolutionary technology that the likes of which we've never seen before. And, and be prepared to be curious and ask some questions around uh, what the nature of money is and why maybe you haven't, we haven't been taught what the nature of money is 
and uh, and be pre- and be prepared to be shocked uh, numerous times along your educational journey. But don't don't write this off. Don't dismiss it on the grounds that um, that you think that it's a scam uh, because that that dismissal is uh, it, it it's been around it survived too many times it hasn't died enough times scams come and go tulips came and went uh and and listen tulips are real things but they're just flowers they're not money this thing has come and survived all sorts of attacks so but don't expect it to go away and 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 try to get honest answers to your skeptical questions about it so that you can learn and i, I to me just the wrap up on this is uh, this is why i find when we do these things i get so excited about these particular shows because we do have people coming and asking the kinds of questions that block people from entering and we're able to spend the time answering those questions and i think in a lot of cases we're able to satisfy the concerns that people had which then paid you know clears the road for them to go down that exploratory path fantastic okay we're going to move to wrap up we're going to get some last comments from stefan lavera uh words of advice to to someone who's new i also want to welcome up general larry lapard also, Corey Clipston, CEO of Swan Bitcoin. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. We'll be turning this stage over to you guys here shortly. Stefan, words of wisdom for someone new? Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to hear um, my spaces has been glitching. So, I wasn't able to hear certain people. Like, I wasn't able to hear Greg. Um, so, apologies if there's any repeats or things like that. But I guess a few... I, I can guarantee you will not be saying what Greg said. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um... I would say focus on Bitcoin, not crypto. Don't think of it like, oh, there's like, you know, I need to learn about all this kind of quote unquote crypto world. Just focus on Bitcoin. Just focus on understanding the problem of fiat currency. Start going through some of the educational content. Swan has a bunch of it. I've got a podcast. There's books out there. Go through some of the educational content. See if it makes sense to you, but really focus on the problem of what's going on around the world today with fiat currency, with people shutting each other down off the payment networks with the continual inflation with you know bonds uh you know uh bondholders getting wrecked over time just focus on that and i think you'll find that bitcoin is basically the uh, the only realistic answer to what's going on and so that's what i'll leave everyone with there so thanks for having me guys awesome thanks for being here stefan and thanks to everybody who came here today that is a wrap. Tomorrow on Cafe, we've got Nat Burnell coming to be a special co-host. A couple of other quick things here. Stratum V2 fundraiser. Stratum V2 is the missing piece of the decentralization puzzle for Bitcoin. If you want to contribute to Bitcoin in a big way, donate to this project. Link is in the nest. MicroStrategy World, May 1st through 4th. Link is in the nest for tickets. Use promo code SWAN30 for a discount. Again, we're not closing this space right after we wrap here. General Lepard, Greg Foster taking over. And we've also got Corey here. He's probably going to hang for a little bit with you guys. That's, at, that's it for my part. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. That's a wrap. This is the place for your morning news. I prefer to hang out for some of the smartest minds in the industry. It is also a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you can, and catch the live show. I want to thank Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show. Without Swan, this would not have been possible. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I am your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. Shoot me a DM if we want to know more. Thanks again to the speakers. As always, appreciate you guys taking your time to teach people about this bright orange future. This is what we call getting on the mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out. You will figure it out. Love all you guys. Have a great day. Get out there and crush it.